Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record is sponsored by HireUp, Australia's largest NDIS-registered platform for people with disability to find and manage their own support workers. To find out more, head to hireup.com.au. That's hireup.com.au. Ethan, what are you up to now? I'm cycling. Oh, cool. Now I've never been able to ride a bike properly. Have you um, done a bit, any triathlons before? No, nah, nothing like that. Nah. Any swimming or running or riding? Swimming all the time, yeah, yeah. running a lot. Yeah. yeah, very good. You could jump on this one if you want. I've always been told from a young age that I've got to keep active or my yeah. body's going to seize up. It's a chilly May morning in a big sports hall in Canberra and this young man from Wollongong is deciding the sport in which he'd like to win gold. What's your name? Uh, my name's Ethan. Ethan? What's your yep. last name, Ethan? Sonta. Sonta. This Parasport Have-A-Go Day is organised by Paralympics Australia to find the champions of tomorrow. But what will they be champions of? Well, that's what today's all about. Ethan came to one of these about 15 years ago when he was only five. I've just made the commitment to come back this year just to see if I could try out for one of the sports and hopefully maybe become a Paralympian one day. Any, any particular sport you're interested in? Oh, just any. I'm just coming to have a look and see what like, I like best. I'm actually a soccer coach who teaches young kids with disabilities. My disability is a left side of my body is cerebral palsy, so left hemiplegia. Ethan heads over to the rowing machines where James sets him up. Have you done any rowing before? Yes. You have? Yeah. So you're going to be like a Dr. Water on this then, I assume? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to pick it up straight away. That's it. So Ethan, just stop there a moment. All I want you to do is reach all the way forwards. Yep. Okay, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to hold the handle. There we go. So big legs. You can still row as hard as you were rowing. But reach nice and long. Getting the technique down. Yeah. I'm Annabelle Williams. I'm a Paralympic gold medalist. I've been the Vice President of Paralympics Australia, the Legal Counsel of the Australian Olympic Committee and the Chair of the Paralympics Australia Athletes Commission. In this series, we'll explore what the Paralympic movement represents and whether it's lived up to its potential, the experience of athletes, but also its impact on the disability community at large. Ahead of the 2024 Paris Paralympics, We'll be hearing from those who've competed at the highest level. I heard the words go, go, go from the crowd and I just went, touch first. Couldn't believe it. From those who oversee the movement. I think the Paralympics represent changing perception of disability. But also those with concerns that too much focus is put on the Paralympics for people with disability more broadly. I have two younger sisters who happen to be able-bodied and I'd be like, hold on, you're not asking them what their Olympic sport is going to be. This is Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record. For now, back to that drafty basketball court in Canberra, where our producer, Sarah Allerley, is chatting to Matthew Leggett, who coaches wheelchair tennis. Just here today to help out, give some people a bit of an understanding of what wheelchair tennis looks like. And what do you get out of tennis? What does it do for you? It's something you can play for a long time. You can play against able-bodied people, you can play against other people in wheelchairs. Unfortunately, it wasn't a lot of these things in Canberra when I was growing up. And because of my disability, I couldn't play contact sports. Are you interested in trying to get into the Paralympics? It was a goal of mine when I was a lot younger, but unfortunately never got into sport at that level early enough. Tennis is a tough one because 
there's only four players from the country. Probably didn't pick the right sport if I was thinking practically about it. Hello, hello, hello. The Paralympics brings disability to the fore. It's a way to introduce the idea of disability to people who don't live it every day. Like these children and their educator Joe at my daughter's preschool. Would you like to have a listen? That's so I can monitor it, so I can hear exactly what's on the microphone. Can I get my headphones back now? Okay. I didn't right. have a time. We're at the preschool to follow up on an earlier chat I had with my daughter's classmates about being a Paralympian. But these kids are pretty focused on Sarah's recording gear. Joe, the educator, tries to bring the conversation back to the Paralympics. And do you remember when Annabelle came to visit us last time? What did she bring with her? A medal. A swimming race. And do you remember where she did that swimming race? It was a very special swimming race. At Nippers. It's like a grown-up Nippers. I know. Do you remember? Paralympics. And remember I also spoke to you about the fact that I was born with one hand? Has anyone seen anything that looks like this? No. no. Could you no. have a guess what you think this might be? A prosthetic arm. Good job, Joyce. That's my daughter, Josie. They usually yes. are um, not real. Yeah. And it's metal. Some of them can be metal. Would you like me to show you how I put my prosthetic arm on? Yeah. yeah. So first of all, I have this thing. It's made of silicon and this one is made to fit my arm perfectly and that's really, really tight. I can't see. I can see. This screw locks in to this carbon fibre cast. Listen to you see if you can hear it. How do you use it? I heard it. Does this look like a hand? No. What does it look like? A crane. A crane? Oh, claw. A claw. It's a bit like a duck face. Oh, I see that too. Quack, quack, quack. Can I hold it again? As these kids pass around my gold medal from London 2012, I think about how this is where conversations about disability need to start, with preschoolers. If we can sow the seeds before they go to school, it's much easier to foster acceptance and understanding. When I was 10, there was a boy in my class who asked if I would sit next to him the next day at lunch. As a 10-year-old, that is as close as you get to being asked out on a date. And I remember feeling so excited about it and awkwardly asking my friends to sit next to us and he asked his friends to sit close by as well. And the lunch itself was fine, but at the end of lunch, he stood up and said as loudly as he could in front of everyone in the playground that he would never sit next to me again because he thought I was so weird for having one arm. A comment like that hurts, especially when you're 10 and already feel pretty different. I didn't want to go back to school ever, but with a lot of encouragement from my family, I fronted up the next day feeling incredibly vulnerable. I remember my teacher started off the day saying that we were going to do a creative exercise. We had to draw our own versions of a superhero. And then she said that every single superhero had to have a disability. 
And by the end of the class, there were 25 superheroes with one arm. And my teacher hung those artworks at the front of our classroom for the rest of the year. The Paralympics can be a catalyst for these kinds of conversations. Kate McLaughlin from Paralympics Australia agrees. I think the Paralympics represent changing perception of disability by using sport as the vehicle and as sport, using sport as a vehicle to change people's lives as well. Kate's the chef de mission, in effect, the team boss for the Paris Paralympics and her main role at Paralympics Australia is head of games and international engagement. Once every four years, the Paralympic Games shines a light on the ability of these amazing humans and regardless of whether people with disability in the Australian community are sporty or not, it just reminds people that of what's possible and not to just push these people away as, oh, they've got a disability and they're not able to participate in life in the same way an able-bodied person can. When parents of kids with disabilities see people on the world stage competing in sport and seeing athletes like their kids doing these amazing things, it just changes their sense of what's possible. I think for people that have had accidents who have previously been someone who've competed in sport, all of a sudden it just opens up this whole new world of opportunity for them. That's the official view from Paralympics Australia. And undoubtedly it's true, but a tiny percentage of people with disabilities end up being Paralympians. People like Hannah Davini find this kind of perspective limiting. Look, I think the Paralympics as an institution and as a series of events definitely have a place in the way we celebrate disability and its visibility because, to be honest, it's really the only vehicle of visibility that disabled people have had for a very long time. The issues I have come from the fact that when I was growing up, the only two narratives of disability that I ever saw were the Paralympics or road safety ads. Like if I had a dollar for every time I was asked some variation of the question, what's your Paralympic sport going to be? I'd be like Scrooge McDuck swimming in gold. And whenever I would get asked that question, I would always kind of take issue with it because I have two younger sisters who happen to be able-bodied. And I'd be like, hold on, you're not asking them what their Olympic sport is going to be. And I think the reason for that is because people see the Olympics as a very elite, like, specific pinnacle of sport, like, only the best are going to qualify, not everyone wants to, all of that kind of stuff. And that same respect and way of thinking isn't necessarily applied to the Paralympics. And I think that is a disservice to the amount of training and skill and talent that Paralympic athletes do. So I think if a disabled person wants to be a Paralympian, great. I just take an issue when that's like what they think they have to be because that's the only path to visibility and success. And there's also a lot to be said for the fact that the Paralympics exist with this narrative of like people overcoming and triumphing and doing all of these amazing things. And it's like, well, I I have the kind of disability having cerebral palsy that I'm never going to like overcome it or triumph. Like everything I achieve is going to be with cerebral palsy firmly in tow. So yeah, I think I just want there to be more options for people with disabilities than just Paralympic success. Amongst Paralympians themselves, there are nuances in opinion about what the Games mean and represent. When people look at the Olympics, they see the pinnacle of human achievement, whereas they look at the Paralympics and 
see the pinnacle of human resilience. And they can relate to the resilience more because no matter what they're going through in their life, the resilience is what inspires them to do the things that they think they should have but never got round to. Tim is a leg amputee swimmer. They can look at the Paralympics and go, well, if he can do that with no arms, no legs, in a wheelchair, I should be able to do it versus they might look at the Olympics and go, that guy's six foot five, built, like he can swim like no tomorrow or something like that. And tell me about what's your fight been like? How have you been able to be resilient? Funny thing was, initially when I started sport, I was very shy. I was very shy about my leg. I had a skin-coloured prosthetic leg because I I didn't want people seeing and asking questions and stuff like that. And through sport over the time and with support from my parents as well, I've grown into being more resilient, being more confident in myself. Now I've got orange and red flames on my legs, so I stand out. Just being able to compete on the world stage and have no issues with taking my leg off, everyone seeing my um, impairment, stuff like that, I think has helped me grow to become a better person. Like the first time I took my leg off and really didn't want to do it, but slowly just repeating that pattern built up the confidence and built up the resilience. I was born without the fibular bone in my lower leg and my tibia, the other bone, is bent. So that meant that my foot, right foot, fused at an angle and as I got older, my right leg wouldn't grow at the same rate as my left. So they said, best chance is to amputate. I can get a prosthetic leg and then I can run, jump, play sport, do things like a normal kid. My parents made that decision when I was four and a half to amputate and yeah, obviously the best decision of my life because it's given me the opportunity to do all these things. I remember the day we headed to the hospital, my mum put me in the car seat and I definitely didn't want to go and I remember like kicking and screaming, stuff like that. I remember that day in the car and then I remember after the surgery kind of waking up in bed with a bandage around my right leg. Just over a decade later, Tim Hodge swam at the Rio 2016 Games. Yeah, I was lucky enough to be the youngest male on the team that year and it was just an amazing experience. What Tim describes, initial embarrassment about his disability morphing into pride, is something that many Paralympic athletes share. It's something that Australia's chef de Michon says is so central to what the Paralympics achieves. And hopefully identifies massive opportunities in the communities to how people with disabilities, you know, they contribute in such amazing ways whether it's in sport, in the arts, in employment, and hopefully opens people's minds to what's possible and, yeah, their perceptions change. Tricky, isn't it? Because I've spoken to people with disability who aren't sporty and growing up and being asked, oh, so what's your Paralympic sport going to be? There's a lot of trickiness there and I think we, I know that our athletes are really aware of how they're perceived by the disability community as well. Our athletes are amazing. They're starting to realise how they can better advocate not just for Paralympic sport but also for their community of people with disabilities as well. I think there's a lot more athletes who are advocating more strongly and not focusing wholly and solely on athletic ability, which is really important. So using their platform. Using their platform to yeah for their community and not just for those who happen to be good at sport because you're right. Not every able-bodied person is going to either aspire to be or going to be an Olympian, Um, and it's no different for the Paralympics. And I think as well, like in the last couple of years, with the improvement in 
visibility of the Paralympic Games, people are more and more saying, oh, actually, it's hard. You don't just because you happen to have a disability and you happen to like sport, you don't automatically get onto the Australian Paralympic team. Yeah, you're in Tassie. You're yeah. a rural Tassie. <laughs> they're not ferns, they're locals. <laughs> Sorry. They're local hoons. <laughs> Tony Nah was a sports administrator and worked for Paralympics Australia in various capacities for 20 years. One of his roles was as an historian of the Paralympic movement and in that role created the Australian Paralympic History Project. Sarah went to visit Tony in the tiny town of Lilydale he's retired to north of Launceston. It's possible to see a number of turning points in the Paralympics but Sydney Games was definitely one and... Australia changed the way that Paralympic sport was conducted in that Australia was the first country to treat its Paralympic athletes as elite athletes and train them as elite athletes. It was basically, the concept was to prepare the athletes the same as able-bodied athletes would prepare. So to give them the same level of coaching, same level of sports science support, sports medicine support, the intensity of preparation and the focus, to be blunt, on winning. And before that, I think there was a... And many other countries in 2000 still operated on it. It was, it was a rehabilitation activity and it was participation. And so even in 2000, there were a lot of athletes who still felt that they should be on the team because they played sport and they had a disability. And we were looking to change that. It's interesting you bring that up, right? Well, this goes right back to the beginning of the Games. You know, the 1960 people like Bill Mather Brown, who were fierce competitors and saw that they were there as athletes. And, you know, the founder of the Paralympic movement, Ludwig Gutmann, and the founder of the Paralympic movement in Australia. That founder was George Bedbrook, an Australian orthopaedic surgeon who established Australia's first spinal injury unit in Perth. Bedbrook revolutionised the treatment of spinal injuries in Australia with sport and exercise and later organised the Australian Paralympic team to go to Rome in 1960. The founders of the Paralympic movement, Ludwig Gutmann and George Bedbrook, their attitude was very much that it was a participation event and it was a rehabilitation event. And so there was conflict between the athletes and the administrators right back from the beginning of the Games. I'd have to say that in 2000, one of the things that Australia did was that the administrators and the athletes were pretty much on the same page and it was about the sport the fact that it's limited by numbers and that you have to qualify, to me, it's nothing but an elite sporting event. And I don't think there'd be many people these days who would see it as anything else. So the founders of the Paralympics saw the Games as essentially rehab. The Games started in the United Kingdom and were called the Stoke Mandeville Games, named after the hospital in which Ludwig Gutmann worked. The Paralympics came out of rehabilitation of soldiers in the Second World War with spinal injuries. A doctor called Ludwig Gutmann, who was a refugee from Germany, was given the task of creating the first spinal unit to rehabilitate soldiers with spinal injuries. And until then, those soldiers had a really short life expectancy. Most of them died, and they died pretty horrible deaths because they got bed sores and they turned to sepsis and they died from blood poisoning in a fairly short time. And Gutmann saw that there was another way and he saw that people could be rehabilitated and his aim, as he said, was to turn 
those soldiers into taxpayers. So basically to give them their lives back. Dr Goodman used antibiotics and had nurses turn patients in bed. But there was another significant part of the rehabilitation program. They needed to exercise. And so he introduced a program of exercise of one of the first parts of rehabilitation. Of course, young men being young men, if you're exercising, then you want to turn it into sport and you want to turn it into competition. And pretty soon they found that the best way to introduce exercise was to create sports that the people with spinal cord injuries could play. And that was the beginning of the Paralympic movement. And so how did we get to the 1960 Rome Paralympics? Well, the Stoke Mandeville Games grew and Gutmann had a vision that the Stoke Mandeville Games would become the Olympics for athletes with a disability or people with a disability. As the Stoke Mandeville Games attracted more and more countries, the idea of holding it in the same city as the Olympics was seen to be something that was desirable. So in 1960, organisers of the Stoke Mandeville Games worked with the disability organisation in Italy to run the... And it was an international Stoke Mandeville Games. It wasn't called the Paralympic Games officially until 1976, I think, was the first time it was called officially the Paralympic Games. So that term Paralympic, I've seen some reports that say that it was actually parallel games and then others that say that sort of came later and it was a reference to paraplegic. What is the correct origin of that word Paralympic? Everything that I've seen indicates that it was that the term parallel came later and that really was the paraplegic games. Now the para part of Paralympic firmly refers to the games being parallel to the Olympics. That grassroots have a try day in Canberra that Sarah went to is a combination of talent scouting by Paralympics Australia and just a chance for anyone with a disability to discover a sport they might enjoy. A lot of Paralympians actually got their start at one of those sorts of events. Karina Harris and Dylan Schwartz are Australian botcher players. Are you hoping to get more people out of the Paralympic team or just more people playing in general? Both. 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 What is it about the sport that you'd be telling people to come along and play? More girls involved. More girls? Only girls? How long have you been playing for? Hi Dylan. Did you go to the last Paralympics? No, I did not. You'd like to go to Paris? I am going to Hong Kong And are you hoping to go to Paris as well? Yes, yeah. I am. Yeah, I wanted it someday. They become Paralympic champion at an international competition and many gold medals, hopefully. Dan Michelle has been a bit of a trailblazer in Boccia and won bronze at the Tokyo Games. I have in person since I know, it's been a long while. Tokyo. What has the impact of the Paralympic movement had on the lives of people with a disability, both athletes and, and beyond athletes? Yeah. And have you seen that change mm. over the course of your career? Definitely, I have. I've noticed a big change and I think, I think what, if nothing else, what the Paralympic movement's done has for sure elevated the profile of people with disabilities and given people with disabilities 
who are Paralympians mainly, a platform beyond sport really to really be able to spread their message or to to be able to, to go on to do things beyond sport as well that have an impact on society. Dan feels that part of his role is helping to lift society's expectations of what people in the broader disability community are capable of. When you do have a disability, what people expect of you is just so much less than people without disabilities. So for me, I experience it almost daily. Yeah, people who will congratulate me just for being out and about. I've, I've experienced all sorts of things like that. A lot of people talk about it now, but it comes from this place where I think um, disability is still seen as a tragedy by a lot of people. And broadly in society, it still is as well. And there's a lot of people trying to change that narrative, but it has a long way to go. You know, people always just assume that your life must suck because you're disabled, but it's just not my experience at all. Like I, I think everyone has challenges in life, whatever it might be. For me, I do life from a wheelchair. It's all I've ever known. It's never something that's, I don't wake up in the morning and think, oh shit, I'm disabled today. Like it's gonna be a terrible day. I've got nothing to do. and. I've got no hope or anything like that. Like, I just live with my disability just the same way everyone lives with whatever they're dealing with. It's just life. It is what it is. You used the phrase severe disability. You referred to yourself as having a severe disability. I've heard some people refer to athletes who play botcher as athletes with higher needs. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a difference between those things? And is one term, would you prefer one over the other? I don't love the term higher needs, I've got to say, just because it's a little, I don't know, it feels a little invasive. <laughs> of like, don't assume what I need sort of thing. I probably prefer the word severe disability just because that's that's what I think the reality of it is. Myself being in a wheelchair and, and all that and the way that I am, I see it as a severe disability. I am probably on the like higher end of, of SMA in terms of my level of disability. SMA, or spinal muscular atrophy, is a genetic condition that affects the nerves that control muscle movement. I can't really move much of my body at all. I have a small amount of movement in my left hand that I can use to drive my wheelchair and use my robotic arm and, and things like that. But beyond that, I'm, I'm just generally very weak. So, you know, I, I can't basically move much at all. And, and yeah, that's, that's, that's me. Wheelchair rugby is a simple game in that a team of four matched against another team of four and they've got to move the ball across the basketball court to get it across the try line at the other end. Uh, Paul Kitely is my... Uh, Paul Kitely is my name and I'm National Performance Director for the Australian Wheelchair Rugby Program and uh, my role is to help and support all of the Australian team athletes but also development athletes who will be hopefully representing Australia in the future. And their chairs are made by titanium steel and they use it as a blocking weapon to stop the, to stop the opposition from scoring. So the same as rugby able-bodied is, they tackle, but in, in wheelchair rugby they use their chair. So they work in a passing, blocking, supporting role to move the ball from one end to the other to score and the name of the game if you haven't got the ball you've got to get it back off the opposition and the bashing and the crashing is why they love it so much it's because a lot of them before their accident or injury were playing able-bodied rugby or AFL. Okay. 
So they love the contact, they love the team aspect. If you haven't seen wheelchair rugby, put it on your list. It's pretty fun to watch. This high-performance wheelchair rugby camp at Melbourne's Essendon Sports Complex demonstrates the power of the sport. Ready? Riley Batt uses a highly specialised wheelchair to play rugby. But the Paralympian used to shun all wheelchairs and refused to use one as a kid. When he eventually hopped into a wheelchair rugby at high school, he felt like he was finally on a level playing field with his friends. Now Riley is a world champion. So I was born with a limb deficiency. When mum and dad got ultrasounds, when mum was pregnant with me, all the ultrasounds showed that I was a perfectly healthy baby boy. Didn't show that I was missing legs. So when I entered the world, it was a huge shock for my family. My mum and dad, a huge shock for them that, you know, they had this new baby boy and was missing legs and deformed fingers. But Riley says his family quickly adjusted and challenged and pushed him from the start. Yep, he's got some disabilities, but we're going to treat him as a normal boy. So growing up, my grandparents were huge influences in my life and I feel like I never really got like just wrapped in cotton wool and protected. They wanted me to experience um, a normal childhood. So if I wanted to go motorbike riding, they would look into buying a motorbike or a quad bike and, and let me try it. They really didn't say no to me very often if I wanted to try something. And I really respect that. And I think that's sort of created who I am today. My, my grandfather was a huge influence in my life. And I remember him towing me behind a boat at three years old. And he put me on a kneeboard and tied me behind the boat and yeah, I'm 10 metres behind the boat as a three-year-old. Who knows if I can even swim, but he, he saw the enjoyment I got out of it and he saw what I could, I could do with my body. And it was pretty risky for some, a kid who probably couldn't swim that well with no limbs, but to tow them behind a boat. My pop also bought me my first ever quad bike and I, I was on it when I was about three and a half years old. I got it for the first time and my parents were really worried that I was going to fall off all the time, but I didn't get off that quad bike for two days straight. They're telling me stories and I sort of vaguely remember that I used to just go past the house and ask for a Vegemite sandwich with a crust cut off and because I didn't want to get off the bike and I used to wet my pants on the bike because I just did not want to stop. And I guess in my head I'm thinking, this is my independence. This is a motor transport for me. I'm riding a quad bike and when there's all these other kids out there who would be able to ride push bikes at that age, I couldn't do that and I needed that sort of outlet. So. Something I look back on in a very, very special moment. My parents were worried about me getting bullied when I was in primary school. It never happened. Never, never got bullied. There was times that I was trying to walk around at school on my prosthetic legs and trying to learn how to walk on prosthetic legs as a five-year-old was quite difficult. And I remember, you know, some kids would just play a bit of a joke and, you know, trip you over or something like that and have a laugh about it. But yeah, it, it was tough to get back up on those prosthetic legs. So little Riley has another idea. I was probably grade one at school. I, I said to my parents, I want to use a skateboard. So I used to sit on a skateboard and use my arms to propel myself around the schoolyard and around home. That was my motor transport. My parents tried to get me in a wheelchair about eight years old after I used this skateboard for a bit because they obviously thought, you know, it's unhygienic. This isn't how he's going to be as an adult. So let's get him in a wheelchair. And I said to my parents, and I remember it clear as day, I said, you can go take me to somewhere where there's wheelchairs. You can get me one. There's no chance I'm going to use it because wheelchairs are for disabled people. So I guess I didn't like the wheelchairs and I wanted to be like my friends. 
on skateboards and that was the fun thing to do. My dad was a builder, so he built a bit of a skate park in our backyard. So all my friends would come over and would hit the half pipe up and we had all these grinds and ramps and whatnot. And it was just a cool thing to do. So wheelchairs for me were defeat and I didn't want that. A few years went on and I started having these thoughts. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe I need to look in this wheelchair. Maybe I need something else because I was starting to think of what people thought of me, especially going into high school. I was starting to think of what are other people going to think of me? Other schools are combining into this high school and there's kids I haven't met before. Are they going to bully me? I'm starting to worry about girlfriends. No girl's going to want a guy with no legs cruising around a skateboard with, you know, dirty hands and half the time my hands were blood on them from running over them or just ripping the skin off on the floor. And at the time in grade seven when I had these thoughts, you had to get your school electives in on time and for sport and I was away that day. So I got stuck with this sport called wheelchair rugby and went to this wheelchair rugby, I guess, come and try day with all my able-bodied friends and I remember all my mates who were very athletic people jumping these wheelchair rugby chairs and bashing into each other and having an absolute ball of a time and I sat back and just said to the teacher, I'm not getting in that wheelchair. I'm not doing it, that's embarrassing. Deep down, I, I think I really wanted to jump in that wheelchair but I just couldn't over, overcome that fear of people looking at me weird in a wheelchair. So, went on a family vacation to a beach close by had this off-road skateboard and I wheeled this off-road skateboard down down this dirt track down to the, the edge of the sand. I used to put my skateboard in the bushes and then crawl down the sand into the water and swam for a few hours and I crawled back up and went to jump on my skateboard to get back home and some bugger had stolen my skateboard and so I really struggled to get home that day. I had to crawl and my mates had to help me and eventually got to dad and I said, Dad, look, I've got no skateboard. But it was at that time where I went, you know what, Riley, let's have a go with this wheelchair. I remember going to the school sport wheelchair rugby, jumping in the wheelchair rugby chair, and for the first time in my life, I felt like I was on the level playing field as all my friends. And I guess because I had the upper body strength from years of using the skateboard, I actually was stronger than my friends and faster in the wheelchair than my friends, even though I've never used one. And it was for once in my life, I felt like I could actually exceed in a sport. So it was an absolutely amazing feeling. And then I eventually made a New South Wales team and then got selected to go to an Australian training camp and as 13 year old and got selected to the men's, at the time it was men's open wheelchair rugby and went and competed in Japan in 2003 as a 14 year old and been playing for Australia now for 20 years. And winning a few medals, might I add. Riley has won two gold and one silver. In the next episode of Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record, we'll dive into the murky area of classification, a system used to group athletes with similar impairments to try and create a level playing field. It's fraught, complicated and pretty hard to get right. We were very angry and very devastated because we all thought that nobody wanted us. Well, this is what I thought, that nobody wanted us. Unbroken, the Paralympics and its record, is hosted by me, Annabelle Williams. The series producer and executive producer is Sarah Allerley. Research by Kylie Gray and sound engineering by Isabella Troppiano. Andrew Thomas is the commissioning editor and this series is brought to you by Higher Up.
support where I'm in control, but can get help if I need it. Disability support should be more than just a website. It should be people who help you live your life your way. Hire up. Disability support as it should be. Visit hireup.com.au.